All right, and we are rolling once again. Brother Kevin, how are you on this fine, fine day? Man, I am doing fantastic. I'm excited about getting into a very controversial question that has been asked quite a bit, not just among our heritage and tribe in the Churches of Christ, but really just uh, across all uh, Christian groups and, and subgroups and denominations of what kind of what kind of wine did Jesus make? Yeah, this has been a source of consternation for a lot of people because you have the uh, the wine bibbers who will say that Jesus made alcoholic wine, and then you have the teetotalers that say, "Oh no, he didn't." You just hold the phone for just one second now. So there's there's a lot of controversy about this, and one of the things that we will get into as we discuss this topic is the idea that there shouldn't be a lot of controversy about this because it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But just like you and I were talking before we we hit record on this podcast, a lot of people's theology and how you know one views alcohol consumption in and of itself is related to this miracle that was performed in Canaan. And this is a story that you can read about in uh, John's gospel in John chapter two. And I believe it begins in verse one. And at this point, Jesus attends a wedding. He goes to this wedding feast and they run out of wine. And at the behest of his mother, he turns water into wine. And he doesn't just turn a little bit of water into a little bit of wine. I think it was, what's the equivalent? Something like seven or eight 55-gallon drums worth of water into wine is what one commentator stated that it would come out to. So it was a lot. Needless to say, a miracle occurred. And whether the wine was alcoholic or non-alcoholic is really beside the point. The fact is Jesus took water and he changed it into something that is not water. He turned it into wine. Well, and at this point, people are probably going to be thinking to themselves, well, can a Christian drink alcohol? And they believe that this passage is, is, or their belief is really predicated on this passage, that if you prove that this is alcoholic wine, then that means that we can drink alcoholic wine and alcohol. But if this is not alcoholic wine, then we don't need to be drinking it. But the case is, is that the argument either way and your conclusion either way on what the Bible has to say about Christians drinking alcohol is not predicated on what kind of wine Jesus made. The whole point of this story is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And that's unfortunate because that usually is lost on a lot of people. Uh, yeah. instead people are debating and I say it's, in, it's unfortunate. It's not unfortunate. That's what the story is about. It's unfortunate that people don't realize oftentimes that is the focus of John chapter two. You know, John chapter two is not put in the Bible so we can debate over what kind of uh, wine Jesus made. Uh, but yet here we are talking about it because it is a question, but I just want to make that point that the whole emphasis of John 2 is to show the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and kind of jump right in though and talk about this because we've been using the word wine and we have differentiated between alcoholic wine and non-alcoholic wine. And usually when people think of the word wine, especially today in our culture, they automatically think of alcoholic wine. It's inseparable. But was that always the case, Lee? No, it, it wasn't. Um, the Greek word that's translated wine is oinos. And I don't even know if I'm saying that right because I'm not Greek and that's a transliteration. But that's the common Greek word that was used in that day. And that was a word that could mean alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine or grape juice, as we would call it today. The fruit of the vine, you might say. But what's interesting to note is, is much like the modern word for wine that we use, uh, wine, there it is, that word instantly means something to your mind. 
if I make up a shopping list for Kim, or if Kim asks me if there's anything we need from the store, because let's be frank, I never make up the shopping list. She's always the one that does that because she's amazing. But if she's putting a list together and she says, Hey, do we need something from the store? And I say, Oh yeah, pick up a bottle of wine while you're there. That word means something. If she, if I tell her that she's not going to say, well, do you mean alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine? She's going to say, oh, okay. Well, do you want a Merlot? Do you want a Cabernet? And by the way, we don't drink. Kim doesn't drink. Sure. You sure do know an awful lot about it and sending Kim to the grocery store to go pick it up. (laughs) Well, let me just put it this way. Kim has never drank a drop in her life. And that's no exaggeration. She's never touched the stuff. She has never drank a drop. Um, I didn't get into this in the solo podcast that, that released last time. But in my days where I was uh, not averring any type of faith whatsoever, I drank like a fish. So you want to talk about someone who has firsthand knowledge of alcohol in all of its forms? I'm your guy. But I haven't drank in a very, very, very long time. And I I think it's worth mentioning now. I'll just go ahead and bring it up because it's flown in the conversation. I don't drink now. I haven't had a drink of alcohol and I couldn't tell you how long. And I have no desire to drink. One of the things that people have said under their breaths about this podcast that you and I are doing, or maybe even not under their breaths, but not to my face at least yet, but it words gotten back to me. Is that, <laughs> you know, that Lee Grant, he just wants to do what he wants to do. He's just trying to justify everything. You know, he, ju- he wanted a tattoo. So he's justifying tattoos. You know, he wants to drink alcohol. So he's justifying alcohol. No, if you think that you're reading way too much into it and you're wrong, I'll just say that just flat out. But I don't drink now, so I don't want any of our listeners to misconstrue this. And Kevin, I don't know what your views are or what your thoughts are on alcohol. I don't know if you drink or not. I think you mentioned that you don't drink either. You and Bethany don't. But this is not Kevin and I's attempt to justify to ourselves that, yeah, it's okay. I want to have drink beer. I want to drink this or that or whatever. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this so I can drink and justify. No, it's not about that. I don't have any desire to drink. And if I go the rest of my life without ever drinking alcohol ever again, that's fine. I have no desire to do it. So don't misunderstand. The point is though, circling back around to that after that little rabbit trail, if, if I send Kim, we got to get back to the point because we're trying to do this short, right? If I send Kim to the store and I tell her, Hey, pick up a bottle of wine. That word means something. If I don't want her to pick that up, I'm going to tell her, hey, pick up some Welch's or hey, pick up some grape juice. That's going to delineate what it is. In the biblical times, you could say wine and mean alcoholic or non-alcoholic, but the primary common, the most common way that that word oinos was used was for normal alcoholic wine, the same thing that we would say for wine. So the Greek word that Jesus used whenever this water was turned into wine is the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18, where the Bible says, don't get drunk on wine. Now, getting drunk from drinking wine requires the presence of alcohol in the wine. Back in the day, I used to drink a lot. I've been drunk more times than I can count. And I don't say that with pride. I don't say that with a puffed up chest. But I've drank a lot, and you never get drunk if you're drinking Welch's. It's not going to happen. Well, and the the word wine... And this was something that I grew up, this was the same argument that I always pointed out is, is that the word wine in the Bible can mean non-alcoholic wine. It could, it could mean something equivalent to our grape juice. And some of the Bible verses, if you're listening and you want to know some of those references uh, that I used to use would and still use and are valid is Isaiah 16, 10, Isaiah 65, 8, Jeremiah 48, 33, 
uh, Joel 1.10, Joel 2.24, uh, and that's just a handful. But what's interesting is that in all of those passages, it's pretty clear we're not talking about alcoholic wine. Uh, some of those passages talk about the wine that is actually in the grape. Well, clearly, if it's still in the grape, then it's not fermented yet. Uh, some of the passages talk about fresh squeezed juice that comes out of the grape. So in those instances, it's very clear to understand we're not dealing with any type of fermentation at that point. But when you look at the word wine, as Lee pointed out, by and large, when you see that same Greek word used in the Septuagint, because by the way, that's the only way we can make a parallel is by looking at the Septuagint because the Old Testament originally was written in Hebrew. And, but we see this word, oinos, the Greek word used in the Septuagint, which is uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Predominantly, it means, as Lee pointed out, just regular wine. And so there is linguistic validity. It is true that the term oinos could mean grape juice, but it's important to note that that's not the normal or predominant understanding of the word. So that means that when we come to John 2 and the Bible says Jesus turned water to wine, that means that we can't automatically exempt non-alcoholic wine from John 2, but it does mean that if Jesus made non-alcoholic wine, we have to have good reason to believe that he did because that word is usually in reference to regular alcoholic wine. Uh, a simple study of this Greek word, especially during the first century, proves that this was not some generic word for either fermented or non-fermented non wine. Rather, it was a word that usually implied normal alcoholic wine as we know it, but could mean non-fermented wine if the context demanded such. So that's just really important to, to think of. And Lee, I know you've got something on this point as well to add. Well, one of the terms that my buddy and I would use back in the day, whenever I drank, was, hey, we need to get some of grandpa's cough medicine before we go down to the river. You know, we'd go fishing or whatever else, and that's, that's how we'd refer to it. Well, cough medicine means cough medicine. And to talk about linguistically how these words work, cough medicine means cough medicine. If I tell Kim, hey, pick up some cough medicine while you're at the store, well, she's going to bring back some NyQuil or DayQuil or, or something along those lines. But if I say, hey, what you been doing? Sucking back on some of grandpa's cough medicine. Well, that word now means something different. And in the same way with oinos, if, it, if it's going to mean something other than, just like you said, Kevin, if it's going to mean something other than alcoholic wine, the normal parlay that that word is used or parlance that that word is used, then there's going to need to be good textual evidence for that. Exactly. Absolutely. There has to be reason to prove why it would not be alcoholic. So let's just really summarize real quick some reasons to believe that the wine Jesus created was alcoholic wine. And then we're going to look at some reasons, and I guess you can say some rebuttals as to why people believe that it wasn't alcoholic wine. And then we'll conclude with uh, really where we stand on this matter, at least where I stand and let you <laughs> say where you stand, Lee, on the matter in case we do disagree. But, you know, when I, when someone asks me, okay, what kind of wine do you think Jesus made? So I look at two things. First, as just stated, I look at the normal usage of the Greek term used for wine. And so that would obviously be inclusive of alcohol. So if I'm just reading this with, with my knowledge of what that word meant, then knowing that that word predominantly meant alcoholic wine, I would say, okay, based upon the word, this is alcoholic wine. But second, when I look at the context, I look at the fact that this is a wedding. 
that's taking place. Now, weddings were big deals back then. I mean, people think weddings are big deals today. Weddings were even bigger back then as far as how long people celebrated them, sometimes a week or longer. And here we see that the master of the feast stated how impressed he was with the wine that Jesus made in John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So due to the fact that the master of the feast said that this was far, far, far superior and that it was great wine, it would be very difficult to understand this as being normal grape juice because no one's ever gone from drinking regular wine, who drinks regular wine, to then taking a sip of Welch's grape juice only to brag about how great the grape juice is in comparison with the great wine. Uh, no one does that. And so yeah. contextually, there's no reason to believe that this would be grape juice. Well, there's not. And another interesting thing, you know, I mentioned Welch's and you mentioned Welch's. And the reason why we're mentioning that is, is that there was a chemist by the, I think he was a chemist anyway, by the name of Welch. And he's the one that created the process of extracting grape juice and treating it chemically in such a way. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. This is something I'm just kind of ad-libbing right now. But he was the one that created the process that allowed grape juice to be extracted and stored without fermentation taking place. Because if you take that juice from the fresh pressed grape, fermentation is going to begin immediately. Anytime there's sugar involved and the other products that are there in that juice and you put it on the shelf and you let it sit for a while, fermentation is going to happen. Now there are things that you can add to that to speed that process along. There are different, um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, catalysts that you can add that will speed up that chemical reaction that will give you what you need and different catalysts with different grapes from different regions will give you different kinds of wine. Well, Welch developed the process that allowed grape juice to be stored on the shelf for a very, very, very long time without any fermentation taking place whatsoever. So that's actually a fairly recent development, but I mean, no one ever brags about how good the wine is. And then you give them a glass of grape juice. You're like, hey, try this. Oh, this is so much better. Oh, why have I been drinking that other swill so long? We just need to drink this forever. Like you said, it never happens. But one of the arguments that I used to make that this idea that the wine that Jesus made was non-alcoholic was the idea that they were at a wedding. They were at a wedding. And the Bible says that they were already well drunk in, what is it, verse 10? They were already well drunk. And the idea is that Jesus would not serve more alcohol to people who were already drunk, nor would he put people in a position to get drunk. I mean, we remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 about the sin of drinking parties and how those are bad things. And if Jesus is making alcoholic wine out of this water, if he's turning water into regular old wine, why Jesus is then implicitly engaging in a drinking party. Jesus would not do that, especially if they were already well drunk. I used to make the exact same argument. That was the argument that I used, and we're going to look at another argument too that I know both of us used to use in times past that's pretty popular. But there were, there's a few things and, and a great way to look at this question is, first of all, challenging the fact that the people were actually really drunk at this wedding feast. So the reason why I would challenge that is because the master of the feast could have possibly simply been making a generality based upon the custom of the day. And we see generalities being used a lot 
in Scripture. We see this in Acts 2.15, 2 Timothy 3.6, 1 Timothy 5.13, Titus 1.12, Matthew 18.17. Uh, going back to eight, uh, Acts 2.15, that was when the people were being acu- accusing the disciples of being drunk because they were speaking in tongues. And Peter said, uh, I believe it was Peter who said, look, no, it's 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 too early in the morning. Well, he's not implying that later on during the day they're going to go and get drunk. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, is he's making that people don't get drunk in the morning. That's not the typical custom. In the same way, it could be the fact that the master of the feast is using a similar generality, not necessarily saying that everybody's drunk, but saying that usually at parties, everybody gets drunk. And that's why people bring out the worst wine last. Well, in this case, whatever the case is, the best wine is being served last. And what a wonderful thing that this was, according to the master of the feast. Second, we know at least the master of the feast could still distinguish the quality of the latter wine Jesus made from the former wine at the beginning. So we know that he wasn't completely drunk. We know that his senses were not dull. So it cannot be conclusively proven that when the master of the feast spoke in John 2.10, that he meant that some of the guests were literally drunk. Rather, he could have been using a generality speaking to the custom of the day. But here's what I like to bring to the table. It is certainly a possibility that some of the guests were actually drunk and intoxicated. I have absolutely no qualms with coming to that conclusion or even coming to that conclusion based upon John chapter 2. But the point that I'm making is that we don't even know if that's the case. But for argument, let's go ahead and assume that is the case, that the master of the feast is saying that, hey, there's a lot of people here at this party and they're drunk. If that's the case, this still has no bearing on whether or not Jesus made alcoholic wine. And here's why. Creating something good that can be abused does not make that same person responsible when another person chooses to abuse it. This would be like condemning Jesus for making extra food when he multiplied the loaves and fishes far beyond what the people needed. In fact, we see in in Matthew 14, 20, Matthew 15, 37, and Mark chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, the Bible talks about when Jesus performed this miracle of all the loaves and fishes, that there were plenty of, of food left over. I mean, there was tons of food left over. So do we need to conclude then that Jesus was promoting or enabling gluttony or gluttonous parties or overeating when he multiplied the fishes and loaves far beyond what the people needed to eat? The answer is, of course not. So the abuse of something does not condemn the proper use of something. Yeah, and we even see that with medicine. I mean, you know, I mentioned cough syrup just earlier. Morphine is a wonderful thing if you're in pain, but there are people that abuse morphine. Morphine is a wonderful blessing upon mankind, but it's a curse for a lot of people that abuse it. There's countless examples that we could give of things that people have taken and have misused. I mean, look at cars. Look at the number of car accidents and deaths that occur every year. There are people who die because their cars are because they misuse their automobile. Either they're negligent in how they drive. Sometimes there are accidents that that happen, but there are people that, hey, some people drink and drive. They misuse the car. But that doesn't mean that all cars are terrible. Cars are a good thing. And maybe that's not the best parallel, but you know, I definitely think the medicine's a good parallel because there are people that abuse things and and well and typically negate the proper use. Typically though, the argument that people make here is that if people are already drunk, why would Jesus 
have made more alcoholic wine if if the people are already drunk. And 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 that's that's the point that I know I used to press home, and that's why I believe the illustration of Jesus uh, multiplying the loaves and the fishes is is a good parallel. It may not be a direct parallel, but I believe it's a fair parallel because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are eating tons and tons of fish and tons and tons of of the uh, of the loaves of bread, but yet that didn't mean that Jesus was wrong for creating a lot more. Uh, just because that there are already people who were filled up, there was still leftovers. And so, you know, the fact that Jesus was making alcoholic wine would have no bearing on people choosing to drink more, right? Well, so that, so yeah. that, and that's why it's so important. The fact that Jesus made a, a lot of extra loaves and fishes, well, it's still wrong to overeat. It's still wrong to be a glutton. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Jesus was wrong for making far beyond what the people needed, knowing that people could have abused it. Well, and I think that that second point that you made, too, about the master of the feast being able to distinguish the wine, because as someone who has been there, whenever you're sloshed, you really don't care where that next hit to maintain that buzz comes from, and you really don't care what it tastes like. So the fact that he could tell, wow, this is the good stuff. You saved the good wine until now? This is amazing. To me, that's really strong evidence based on experience that they likely, the at least the majority, weren't drunk. But even so, even if some were drunk, how does that play into what the Bible teaches in Habakkuk 2 and 15? Because the Bible tells us in Habakkuk 2 and 15 that it's a it's a curse, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right here in front of me. I, I'm came up here to do this and I didn't bring my Bible with me. Shame on me. But <laughs> back at 2.15, it says something to the effect of, you know, woe to them or cursed are they. It, it, it just, if you give wine to someone to get them drunk, it's a bad, bad, bad thing. And that's an argument that I would use as well, is that the wine that Jesus gave them couldn't have been alcoholic because if he did that, he would have been violating that precept in Habakkuk and he would have been cursed and we know he wasn't cursed. So therefore it couldn't have been alcoholic. It might do us well to read that and you'll have to read it since I don't have a way to do yeah, that. Yeah, sure. So Habakkuk 2.15, it says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, which obviously it's, it's talking about alcohol there, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk that you may look upon his nakedness. And this was an argument that I actually heard when I was in, I think, 10th grade, and my youth minister taught it to me. And, and he just thought it was the coolest argument because he came in class one night. And he goes, I can prove Jesus did not make alcoholic wine. And he was just really excited, and he went to Habakkuk 2.15, and he quoted it, and he put on the, I, re I really remember this vividly, he wrote on the whiteboard there, the marker board, that he said, uh, Jesus did not sin, Hebrews 4.15. The Bible says that Jesus was under the law when he lived on earth. And then he concluded by saying the, the Old Testament teaches that it was a sin to give someone alcohol. Therefore, if Jesus gave someone alcohol, he was really not the Messiah. And I'm thinking to myself as a, as a you know, 10th, 11th grader, I'm like, wow, you know, this, this is true. I mean... Jesus was under the old law, and that's what the old law said, that you couldn't give alcohol, alcoholic wine to your neighbor, then yeah, Jesus either sinned, thus he's not the Messiah, or Jesus didn't make alcoholic wine. And these are those false dichotomies that, that Lee and I oftentimes talk about, because yeah. it sounds really good. 
And especially to a 10th or 11th grader who doesn't even know much about Habakkuk anyway. I don't even know if it's pronounced <laughs> Habakkuk or Habakkuk, but either way, it, it seems like a pretty sound argument. And therefore, I really paired to that argument for a while. But as I got older, I realized that as nicely as this alleged argument is framed, it lacks in substance because uh, I guess you could say this is a substance abuse, maybe. Um, <laughs> like oh, that. Oh, 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 man, that was bad. you and your buns. So, oh, that was so, rough. So, so first, there is no law in the Old Testament or, or a principle or anything else you want to call that forbids someone giving alcoholic wine to, to another. Nor is there any kind of law that forbids somebody in, in, from drinking alcoholic wine. When you look at Habakkuk 2.15... You have to look at the context. And this verse is not some sort of, first of all, this verse is not a case law imperative, period, forbidding one neighbor to give another neighbor a glass of wine. That's that's not even what the Bible says, much less what it means. On the contrary, this verse is metaphorically referencing the wickedness of the Chaldeans, uh, presumably Nebuchadnezzar, as most Bible scholars think, and I fit into that category, although I'm not a scholar, but I do believe that's who it's talking about. And it speaks to those who would get their neighbors drunk in order to take advantage and exploit them. And we see this going back to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6. So such a verse here could hardly be used in comparison with the events of John 2, unless you believe, since people like dichotomies, let's set one up, unless you believe the reason Jesus created this wine was to get people drunk so he could take advantage of them and exploit them. If you don't believe that's what Jesus did, then Habakkuk 2.15 cannot be used at all in reference to John chapter 2 because that would have no effect on that passage or application whatsoever. So the bottom line is Jesus would not have been violating any law by making alcoholic wine, nor would he have been violating any Jewish law by drinking alcoholic wine, unless he had taken the Nazarite vow, and we'll talk about that in our next podcast. But the point is, is that there's no law stated. Jesus would have not been violating any law. And what this does is is this kind of opens the door for people. I want to be careful here because I don't want to sound derogatory, but it opens the door for people to be more honest with John 2 because the only reason that I know that I was taught and while I taught others Jesus could have not made alcoholic wine is because my presupposition taught that Jesus could have not made alcoholic wine. Therefore, no matter how clear the evidence, I was constantly trying to manipulate passages to teach that he didn't actually make alcoholic wine, even though contextually it seems undeniably clear linguistically, there's no reason to believe he didn't. But because of my presuppositions and my beliefs, I had to somehow find a way to prove that Jesus did not make alcoholic wine. But when I took those blinders off, if you will, those presuppositions off, it was a lot easier to understand, hey, wow, you know, this is this is pretty pretty clear Jesus made alcoholic wine here in John 2. Well, and, and that idea about the presuppositions, it's an exercise in confirmation bias whenever our duty and our goal is to protect those sacred cows, for lack of a better term, that we have held on to and those inherited doctrines that we've believed in for so long. And I want to circle back around to something that you said before we wrap this up, this idea that Jesus didn't violate the law by making or drinking alcoholic wine. What's really interesting to me is a passage over in Numbers. And over in Numbers chapter 28, I believe it is, the Bible talks about a drink offering that's made. 
And the Bible has to do, and that drink offering was a strong drink. And it says here, let me find it. And its drink offering shall be one fourth of a hen for each lamb in a holy place. You shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. The King James renders it and the drink offering thereof shall be the fourth part of in him for one lamb in the holy place. Thou shalt cause the strong wine to be poured out to the Lord for a drink offering. And without getting into the Hebrew, there's different words. And I can't remember the Hebrew word for strong drink or for strong wine, but the word for wine was yayin. And then there was another word for, for strong wine. So my question is, is if it was completely forbidden for them to drink any at all whatsoever, because that's, that's what it, that's the case that has to be in place in order for Jesus. If Jesus consumed any, then he sinned because he violated that old law. Well, if it is a violation of the old law, well, God accepted the pouring out of a strong drink as an offering unto him. And in order to pour out that offering, you would have to have some of that strong drink to begin with. So, I mean, what were they doing with it? Were they just kind of storing it up and just waiting to make that offering? It just, it really doesn't make any sense. But whenever you come to it with that presupposition, like what you were saying, and we're working to confirm our own biases, we don't think about it in those terms. We don't look at the body of evidence that exists within the Old Testament. We don't look at it through the appropriate lens because we're looking at it through the lens of that prior conviction that we held to. And that isn't rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm, I'm convinced that that is a miscarriage of justice. It is a miscarriage of the scriptures and we need to do better about it. And when you're in 11th grade and you're being told that, <clears throat> that if you do believe Jesus made alcoholic wine, then he couldn't have been the Messiah. Well, clearly I believe Jesus was a Messiah and still believe that. And so I never wanted to come to a conclusion that would make it seem like I was saying Jesus was the Messiah. And that's really the problem, not only with these presuppositions, but these false dichotomies that we sometimes try to create in our logical minds of, of getting people to agree with us is we want to overstate our case by saying, if Jesus would have made alcoholic wine, then you might as well just not even believe in God anymore. And, <laughs> and so it doesn't allow people the opportunity to be fair with the text. And yeah. to be honest with the text, I mean, we all come to the table with our bias and prejudice. We do. None of us is 100% objective. I, I told somebody one time, they said, well, I, I've, you know, our preacher is really objective. I said, unless you have two preachers who every week get up there and, and talk about why they disagree and they each are able to give their own perspective, I said, you're not really hearing an objective lesson. Because the only way to truly hear uh, and study objectively is to go to the opposing sources so that you can read both sides. And, yeah. and, and this, these false dichotomies, it doesn't allow us to do that. We're not even allowed to because we're so afraid that if we come to a different conclusion, well, maybe that means Jesus is the Messiah. No, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. The fact he turned water to wine, alcoholic wine, it would seem, does not negate that. And so did Jesus turn water into alcoholic wine? At the end of the day, I want to emphasize this question really doesn't matter because Nothing is predicated. There's no conclusion of alcohol that, that that's predicated on coming to the right conclusion in John two. There's plenty of other passages and principles and stories that we're going to talk about in our next podcast. But contextually, historically, and linguistically, it would appear that Jesus did make alcoholic wine. 
you can come to the conclusion that it was non-alcoholic, but it's a better reading and it's a better, it's, it better respects the context to conclude that Jesus created non-alcoholic wine. But like you said, from the outset, it really doesn't matter because the entire purpose of concluding that it was non-alcoholic comes from that presupposition that Jesus couldn't have done it. So you build this case because of this paradigm that you're under. And for the reasons that we just talked about, there's really no good biblical reason to understand John 2 as anything other than Jesus turning water into what we call wine. And in doing so, Jesus didn't violate the law. Jesus didn't condone drunkenness. And those are the two biggest fears that people have if we teach that Jesus did turn water into into wine, into real bona fide wine, is that we're saying that Jesus violated this law because of of Habakkuk, or as I said it, Habakkuk. That's how I said it whenever I was a kid. You were talking about pronunciation earlier. Um, But Jesus didn't condone drunkenness either. He didn't condone drunkenness any more than Bushmaster condones mass shootings. He didn't, I mean, he didn't condone drunkenness any more than Ford Motor Company condones car crashes or drag racing on the street, you know, illegal drag racing on the street. It's contextually and historically and linguistically, it's the best conclusion, the best reading of scripture is that this was actual wine. And like you said, it really doesn't have a bearing on the bigger question of how Christians should use or not use alcohol, which is something that we're going to talk about in our next episode. And in our duty and in our effort to try to keep things short, this wraps up really what we wanted to say about this subject. You have anything else you want to add, brother? Look at that, man. We can do it. There were people, I'm sure, who just lost money right now because they were making bets, (laughs) saying we bet they can't do it. So, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Put that pop and smoke it. Wait, hold on. That's a whole other podcast topic for another time, man. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, we want to thank our ever-present listeners for your kind attention, for being a part of our audience, for helping us to bring this podcast to others. You know, our entire duty and our purpose here is to have good conversations and talk about these controversial topics and subjects and give good weight to both sides. We have a lot of cool stuff in the works. Um, Give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Podbean, whatever your app is of choice that you use, whatever platform you use. Give us a review. Um, Like our podcast, like our Facebook page, share it with your friends. Please keep listening and reach out to us and let us know what you think. We love getting feedback, even some of the negative feedback we've gotten in, in recent weeks. We appreciate it. We appreciate hearing from everyone who listens. We ask that you all stay safe. God bless you all, and we'll see you soon.